NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. This week, New Hampshire voters will select their choice for the GOP presidential nomination. Nikki Haley has put it all on the line there. Plus, North Korea has dropped its goal of reunifying with South Korea. We'll tell you what that means. And in a first for St. Paul, Minnesota, the city's council members are all women under 40. We talked to two of them. Plus, in Chicago, everyone's talking about the rat hole. Yeah, it's in the shape of a rat, but it's also surrounded with coins, cards. There appears to be some shredded cheese. It's Sunday, January 21st. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Trump invited South Carolina leaders on stage with him yesterday while campaigning in New Hampshire. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on Trump's latest attack on his top rival and former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley. The current South Carolina governor, Henry McMaster, led the group on stage that also included the lieutenant governor, attorney general, and several members of Congress. You've heard this, those great philosophers, the Spice Girls, Tell us what you want, what you really, really want. Well, that's what we're here to do, to tell you what we in South Carolina want, what we really, really want. The move is not just a challenge to Haley, but also part of Trump's inevitability argument for the nomination. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. Crisscrossing the state of New Hampshire, Nikki Haley shrugged off McMaster's statements, noting that she had previously defeated McMaster's when she first won the office of South Carolina governor. A viral video not long after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel showed a former U.S. National Security Council official going on a racist anti-Palestinian tirade against a halal vendor in New York City. As Harrison Malkin reports, the charges included hate crime, stalking, and aggravated harassment. Now the suspect has reached a plea deal with the city. In November, Stuart Sudowitz, the former State Department employee, was charged with a hate crime after harassing a halal food vendor in New York City's Upper East Side. Videos of Sudowitz's rants went viral on social media. In one clip, Sudowitz tells the vendor, if we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, you know what, it wasn't enough. Now, nearly 25,000 Palestinians have been killed by the Israeli military in Gaza. Sudowitz, though, reached a plea deal with authorities in the city, allowing charges to be dismissed if he attends a 26-week anti-bias training course and avoids arrest or interacting with the victims. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin in New York City. In Gaza, more than a million Palestinians have packed into the southern city of Rafah to escape the fighting with Israel. Thousands have begun sleeping in tents and makeshift shelters. Julia Tuma from UN Relief Agency in Gaza, UNRWA, tells the BBC that conditions in the territory are desperate. People are now resorting to living in these informal structures covered with plastic sheeting. Um, you see them mushrooming everywhere as we were driving in southern Gaza. And they have no facilities, um, no toilets, let alone showers. And there's very little food and there's very little medicine. And um, it's really unhuman conditions. The UN says there's a shortage of 50,000 tents in Gaza, driving the cost of a tent from $50 to as much as 800 This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Teacher contract negotiations resume this morning in Newton, 
Last night, striking teachers rallied after yesterday's talks failed. Newton Teachers Association President Mike Zillis says he's frustrated with the city. They aren't bargaining in, in a way that indicates that they, ind- they understand the urgency of the situation we're in. Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller says the city is committed to reaching what she calls a competitive and sustainable contract. A judge is ordering the teachers to end their strike by this afternoon. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. Newton canceled school last Friday, the first day of the job action. A police officer in the small town of Wilbraham outside Springfield is hospitalized after being shot last night. Authorities are not releasing the officer's condition. The police officer exchanged gunfire with a suspect inside a home. A state police tactical unit was deployed and arrested the suspect after he barricaded himself inside the house. Troopers say they found the man with gunshot wounds. He was taken to the hospital under armed guard. Two Massachusetts hikers and a companion are safe after being rescued from a New Hampshire mountain. New Hampshire Fish and Game says the hikers were lost on Mount Maniadnock Friday night when wind chills were 10 degrees below zero. Officials say the hikers did not have warm clothing or lights and called for help. Rescuers were able to help the hikers down the mountain in the dark. It will be cold and blustery today, but slightly warmer than it was yesterday. National Weather Service meteorologist Rob Magnia says the overnight temperatures were extreme. We had wind chill temperatures get to as low as minus 8 degrees uh, out in Worcester. Uh, air temperatures have generally been uh, kind of more modest in uh, the low teens. A couple locations have gotten into single digits. He says temperatures will start to moderate tomorrow afternoon. Last night at the Garden, the Bruins beat the Canadiens 9-4. Tonight, the Celtics are in Houston against the Rockets. It is 15 degrees in Boston with highs in the mid-20s today. WBUR supporters include Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories, More at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. Last week's snowy Iowa caucuses yielded pretty clear results for the GOP. Former President Donald Trump won by a wide margin. But now Trump and Nikki Haley are each trying to rally the voters for Tuesday's New Hampshire Republican primary. So if you want to save America, then this Tuesday, January 23rd, you must go out and Vote for Trump. That's me. That's me. If you will commit to go out and vote on Tuesday, I promise you, our best days are yet to come. Thank you very much. God bless you. And, and NPR's senior White House correspondent, Tamara Keith, is in New Hampshire right now. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. Okay, so there have been some rallies and some smaller events, too, in recent days. Tell us what you've been seeing. Let's talk about scale. Last night, I was at a Trump rally in a large arena in Manchester, New Hampshire, where I actually covered another Trump rally roughly four years ago. Back then, the arena was packed. But this time, the entire upper deck was empty. The crowd was probably half the size. Uh, And I met a lot of people from out of state, which is normal for a Trump rally. But 
Everyone there stood in long lines in the freezing cold, uh, and they were as excited about Trump as ever. By way of contrast, the largest Haley event I've been to um, so far would have filled one section in this arena. At her events, there are people just hoping to get eyes on her, independent voters trying to decide if they really want to vote for her or really think she can beat Trump. Uh, and at Trump rallies, there's none of that nuance. No shopping around. They are all in. So this primary is getting close. Like, how are the candidates closing out the campaign? Haley and Trump have really ramped up the attacks on each other. At the rally last night, Trump tore into Haley at length. Then he brought up onto stage a whole bunch of leading South Carolina politicians and the state's governor in a show of strength. South Carolina is, of course, Haley's home state and the next major contest in the nominating calendar. But Trump appears intent on knocking out his competition before South Carolina South Carolinians even get to vote. Meanwhile, Haley is dismissing all of these endorsements that Trump is racking up and going after the former president as too old, bringing too much chaos and likely to lose to Joe Biden. Uh, now, also, she is questioning his cognitive abilities. We can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do this. We can't. Then at Trump's rally, he claimed, boasted that he had just passed another cognitive test and aced it. I don't, you can't ace cognitive tests, though, I don't think. <laughs> um, but, but I get what he's trying to say. Uh, what got this back and forth started? So Friday night at another smaller rally in Concord, Trump was seemingly delivering one of his regular rants about January 6th, the Nancy Pelosi. But instead, he said Nikki Haley repeatedly. You just have to hear it. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. You know, they do you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of. Lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. Nikki Haley was, of course, nowhere near Washington, D.C. or the Capitol on January 6th. Trump's campaign is dismissing the glitch, saying Nikki and Nancy are two politicians whose names start with N, one in the same. Uh, but it certainly gave Haley an opening. Uh, what about for the voters out there? One Trump supporter told me that early on he didn't think that Trump had a chance and he was looking at other candidates. But then Trump got indicted multiple times and he knew he had to support Trump. You hear that a lot. At the Haley events, uh, she's getting polite applause, uh, not the sort of roaring applause. Uh, but, you know, a lot of here, people here are really just trying to figure out what to do. Independent voters can vote in the Republican primary, and many we spoke to are looking for a way to stop Trump, and they think Haley has the best chance, or honestly, maybe the last best chance, because it's essentially a two-person race here in New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis uh, has a few events, but really isn't competing. And New Hampshire uh, may just be the last big contest uh, before Trump runs away with it. Certainly that is uh, that is the impression he wants to leave. That's NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you so much, Tam. You're welcome. 
We're going to turn to the Middle East now, where the Hamas-Israel war could threaten to or threatens to cause a wider conflict. On Saturday, Israeli airstrikes in the Syrian capital of Damascus killed five members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. In western Iraq, Iranian-backed militia struck an airbase, injuring two soldiers, one Iraqi one American. And on the border between Israel and Lebanon, an increasing, an increasing volley of attacks could escalate into an all-out war. NPR's Jane Araf has more. Israel has warned for weeks that if Hezbollah does not pull back fighters further from its border with Lebanon, war is coming and more Israeli soldiers will be deployed. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah's response to that? What a threat. Welcome and hello. Welcome and hello. Who are you threatening us with? If you add a few brigades, will you scare us? Despite the bluster, concerns are growing that whether anyone wants it, escalating attacks could lead to a heightened conflict that would be difficult to stop. Israel says it needs to ensure that its northern border is not as vulnerable as its southern one was when Hamas attacked in October. Israel's former national security advisor, Yaakov Amador, said Israeli forces rotating out of Gaza would be retrained to be sent north. One of the reasons that we are taking out forces out of the Gaza Strip back into Israel for preparations for the next stage in the north, which might be a full war. A full war between Israel and Hezbollah, one of the most heavily armed non-state militias in the world, would be a nightmare scenario one that would devastate impoverished Lebanon, already a fragile state where Hezbollah is the most powerful political and security player. Iran supports Hamas and more directly funds and supplies Hezbollah. But 17 years of isolation in the Gaza Strip have left Hamas badly resourced. Israel acknowledges that fighting Hezbollah would be very different. Israel and Hezbollah have fired missiles and launched explosive drones across the border since the Gaza war began. Nasrallah has said the aim is to divert Israeli military resources from Gaza. Until three weeks ago, UN peacekeepers at the border said the attack seemed deliberately contained, confined mostly to military targets within the border zone. But on January 2nd, Israel assassinated a senior Hamas official, Salah al in a drone strike in a crowded neighborhood in Beirut. Speaking in a video address to an audience in northeast Lebanon, Nasrallah made clear that changed the equation. Attacks on the border on military targets are the normal state of affairs, he said. But when the targeting is in Lebanon, in the southern suburb, we cannot accept this equation. This is a significant and serious breach. While Hezbollah retaliated by attacking strategic Israeli military posts, Nasrallah has left the retaliation open-ended. The U.S. is taking the threat of wider war in the region seriously. National Security Advisor Antony Blinken warning in Qatar during a tour of Arab capitals. This is a moment of profound tension in the region. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize. U.S. officials don't talk to Hezbollah, which is classified in the U.S. as a terrorist organization. And Blinken didn't come to Beirut, but Special Envoy Amos Hochstein did. 
carrying proposals for negotiations on the border issue. Lebanon's foreign minister, Abdullah Abu Habib, told us they were rejected. And that's what we told the Americans. We want peace, but it has to be fair. Otherwise, we'll not accept. It can go forever like this. The Palestinians have been refugees for 75 years, have been struggling for 75 years, but they continue to do it. The conflict at the Lebanese-Israeli border isn't just about Gaza. Israel's 1982 invasion and its occupation of Lebanon helped spark the creation of Hezbollah, which has entrenched itself as the guardian of Lebanese security. A 2006 UN resolution calls for Hezbollah to pull further back from the Israeli border, but Hezbollah refuses. Lebanon is also trying to reclaim land near the border occupied by Israel. The Hamas representative in Lebanon, Ahmed Abdelhadi, tells us that all parties in Lebanon insist there has to be a full ceasefire in Gaza before any talks on the border. Nobody wants a war in the region. But if the aggression on the Gaza Strip continues, things might expand and lead to a war in the region. There are tens of intermediaries sent by the United States to Hezbollah and under the table to the Iranians saying that we do not want an expansion of the war in the region. Another senior Hamas official, Osama Hamdan, tells us that when it comes to Lebanon, Hamas and Hezbollah interests are intertwined. If you support the Palestinians to get rid of the occupation, that means you are protecting your land strategically. So whenever they support the Palestinians, they are protecting Lebanon from the threat of the occupation. Lebanon is already struggling with a deep financial crisis and a long-running political stalemate. War on top of that would be devastating. Lebanese and militia leaders here fear the longer the war in Gaza rages, the more likely the prospect of war at their border will become. Jane Araf, NPR News, Beirut. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18. Coming up in about 15 minutes, in a small city in South Dakota, you'll find the National Music Museum with one of the world's largest collections of historical instruments. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall. bgsp.edu. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary votes. On Tuesday, live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primary starts at 7 in the evening here on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. It's down to the wire in New Hampshire with former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley closely competing for the state's primary win. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is also on the ballot. Haley is questioning former President Trump's mental competence. Trump, meanwhile, has assembled a high-level roster of endorsements from South Carolina officials. 
A barrage of missiles and rockets fired by Iranian-backed militants at a base in western Iraq has wounded an Iraqi soldier, and some American service members are being evaluated for possible concussions. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. North Korea reversed its long-standing policy of peaceful unification with South Korea last week. Leader Kim Jong-un announced his country is abandoning that goal and declared South Korea its principal enemy. A day before that speech, North Korea tested a ballistic missile. And a few days afterwards, it claimed to have tested an underwater drone that could carry a nuclear weapon. Is this just posturing or signs that the regime is about to make a dramatic move? Edward Howell is a lecturer at the University of Oxford and specialist on North Korea, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. What do you make of Kim Jong-un turning away from the goal of unification? Why is he doing that and why now? So this is clearly a departure from North Korea's historic goal of reunifying the Korean peninsula under the control of of the North. Um, What we're seeing, however, is North Korea really take advantage of the cleavages in international relations, the inability of the United Nations Security Council to stop North Korea um, from becoming ultimately a nuclear armed state. That, in my view, is Kim Jong-un's ultimate goal at the moment. And by presenting South Korea as this foreign power, he justifies escalating any provocations towards them. And are these recent military tests, are they more of the same or or what should we read into them? What we're seeing is that North Korea is escalating provocations both in rhetoric and in actions as we've seen over the past few weeks um particularly given how this year is an election year it's an election year in south korea with legislative elections but also with the u.s presidential elections in november and this is in line with north korea's past behavior but what we are seeing is an increased confidence on the part of north korea that it does not want to negotiate with south korea or the united states Um, and it's increasingly confident in its status as a self-declared nuclear arms state. Is that because, I mean, obviously there are a lot of sanctions on North Korea. In the past, they had wanted um, to try to work out a deal to get some relief and possibly give up at least some of their weapons. Is that no longer on the table for them? North Korea, I think under Kim Jong-un at this stage, is really unwilling to negotiate. It's not even pretending to want to engage in talks with South Korea and with the United States. And Kim Jong-un has also made statements to his people 
making clear that the, the North Korean people should learn to live with sanctions. So what we're seeing here is quite a shift from previous times, previous points in times in North Korean history, where Pyongyang has made much greater attempt to try and extract concessions from the United States. In fact, what we're seeing is North Korea forge greater ties with its Cold War patrons, particularly of Russia. Yeah, yeah, I want to ask you that because Russia's become much more important recently and it actually bought a large shipment of arms from North Korea in the fall. So what do Russia and North Korea gain from each other? So at the most fundamental level, this is a cash for ammunition exchange. North Korea gets money at a time when its economy is declining and it needs money and Russia gets ammunition and vital artillery supplies. Um, but I think, you know, we must remember that Russia is not North Korea's largest trading partner, that is China. Yeah. At the same time, there is a growing sense amongst the North Korean leadership that there is a need to take advantage of the fissures in, interna in the broader international environment and, uh, and the formation of an anti-Western coalition between North Korea, Russia and with other countries is also very much on Pyongyang's minds. What do you think the U.S. and its allies in the region um, should do in response to this? Like, what should the response from the West be to uh, these deepening ties between Russia and North Korea and uh, um, to North Korea's kind of intransigence at this point? I think, firstly, there's a real need for the United States, United States to strengthen its alliances and reassure its allies, particularly South Korea and Japan, both bilaterally and trilaterally. And we saw this last year at the Camp David summit. Um, I think there's also a growing need for the US to make sure that South Korea and Japan themselves, that this bilateral alliance is strong, because we know that historically it has been rather volatile. Um, and I think ensuring that all of the United States allies in Northeast Asia are on board um, is, is very important at this present time. That's Edward Howell. He's a lecturer in politics at Oxford University. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you very much. St. Paul, Minnesota has a new city council freshly sworn in this month, and it's a historic one for the city. All seven elected council members are women and all are under 40 years old. Six of them are women of color. Council President Mitra Jalali and council member Sara Jost are with us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So, Sara Jost, you're new to the council. Mitra Jalali, you're new to the presidency. Both of you have known since November's election what the new council would look like. But now that you're sworn in and working, is it what you expected? Yeah, I, you know, this is our second official week. I'm still getting used to it. And so far, it's just been, you know, really great these first few weeks to be working with uh, my council member colleagues and all the staff at the council. Council President, what do you think about this? I have just spent um, a lot of the last couple of months processing and absorbing the reality of what our voters accomplish. So many young girls and moms, dads, parents of all gender backgrounds posting with their children, uh, expressing what it meant to them to see this new class of leadership for the city. That's really exciting to me. 
what are some of the issues that you'll be prioritizing as a council? I mean, obviously, you know, snow removal and like potholes and, and you're, you're dealing with like the bread and butter issues for people. Yeah, I think the issues that the city council deals with are very, you know, personal and community level and having to do with your neighbors. And so some of the things that we are focused on together as a council are things like affordable housing, um, providing more protections for our renter population in our city, sustainability and climate change and the city's role in that. Those are things that um, Council President Jalali has been working on for a long time and things that uh, all of our you know, new council members are really excited to get into. Council President, how do you think having a young and diverse council, how does it affect how the council operates? And talk about how you feel like it's a, a reflection of the community. I think that, you know, for a lot of racial equity issues in our community, we don't have to do like a member education phase. Our leaders are already there. They get it. They've lived it. They see it. They're experiencing these systems. The people that are in their families and our families are experiencing these systems. For example, you know, we have uh, renter issues. That's a big one that Councilmember Joss named. So a majority of our community rents their home. And this is a council that reflects the injustices in renting that too many people experience and is really looking at how do we center our solutions, uh, the people closest to those problems. People chose to vote for us. There were people of other identities, other races that the people of St. Paul could have chosen and they didn't. They chose to vote for us. I love our city. They had choices in this election. That's the beauty of democracy. They placed their trust in us to deliver on the core areas we campaigned on, right? It's not just identity, it's ideology. It's a community safety vision at which Minnesota found itself at the epicenter of with everything that happened in 2020, uh, our state's track record on police brutality, all of those things, right? It's uh, housing justice and it's economic development for our communities. Is there a lesson to be learned from your experience in this election year? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, the way we were all elected, you know, by the voters was a lot of grassroots organizing. A lot of us had spent a lot of time in our communities through uh, neighborhood organizations and through working on other campaigns had already knocked a lot of doors in the city of St. Paul. So I think a lot can be learned from that um, when it comes to thinking about politics nationwide and how we can elect, you know, more women and women of color to these positions. Council President. There is no substitute for hard work. Organized people can overcome organized money. There is no substitute for relevant candidates who reflect voters' experiences and who earn their trust and convince them of their policy direction and, and vision for the future, right? And you just, you have to be willing to stay in that work and relationship with people. We were outspent in multiple races by sometimes like $100,000, which is a lot for a local race. And our candidates that are on the council now overcame that through that vision, those relationships, and ultimately just that commitment to really working with people to make sure that they're coming to City Hall with us. So to me, that's the lesson. We can't take voters for granted. You got to be in this with people. And I think this council is. And that's something that I'm proud of. And I hope our national conversation shifts in that direction. St. Paul City Council President Mitra Jalali and Council Member Sarah Jost. Thank you both so much for speaking with us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the time. Appreciate your work. 
One of the most memorable moments at the Golden Globe ceremony earlier this month wasn't in English. Actor Lily Gladstone, the first indigenous woman to win a Golden Globe, began her speech in Blackfeet. Hear more about how her mother, Betty Peace Gladstone, helped her learn the language. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, you can listen on a radio, smart speaker, or your phone's web browser. Is it a squirrel or is it a splat of a rat? Either way, a rodent-shaped impression on a Chicago sidewalk is getting a lot of attention after a photo of, of it went viral on social media. Tourists and locals alike are flocking to the so-called rat hole, and a naming contest is underway. Anna Savchinka with member station WBEZ also paid the hole a visit. I just got off the Brown Line train in Addison on Chicago's north side and just a brisk walk away from the L-stop, I am here by the rat hole. There's been a shrine set up for it. Are you here to visit the, the rat hole? Well, yes. That's Brendan O'Neill, whom I meet by the hole. So I've lived in Chicago for about 20 years or so, um, and this just seems like the type of Chicago thing that I need to see before it uh, goes away or becomes commercialized. And what do you see? Well, it's interesting here because you have the, the hole on the ground, and yeah, it's in the shape of a rat, but it's also surrounded with coins, cards, there appears to be some shredded cheese, and then in the snow closer to the street, uh, you have some uh, trinkets that were left behind, including some uh, York peppermint patties, a little rubber ducky, some cones, candles, and some condoms for whatever reason. Do you think it's the splat of a rat or a squirrel? I think it's a squirrel. You know, I spoke to a zoologist yesterday that agrees with you. Nice. <laughs> His name is Seth Magley, and he's the director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo. If you think about why an animal would drop from the sky and splat onto concrete. Squirrels spend a lot of time up in tree branches, right? Rats don't. I ask Magley why he thinks people are obsessing over the rat hole, which has been here ever since the concrete was poured years ago. You know, these urban wildlife species are kind of invisible to us until they do something crazy like splat out of the sky onto concrete. But the reality is they're around us all the time. And it's just, always amazes me how deep these connections that we have to the natural world and to wildlife are. So much so, the Lakeview Roscoe Village Chamber of Commerce started a competition to name the rat hole. Some of the top candidates thus far are Lil Stucky, Roscoe the Rhodes Dent, and Splatatui. Though the Chamber of Commerce may want to reconsider that last one if it's really the splat of a squirrel and not of a rat. For NPR News, I'm Anna Savchunka in Chicago. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. For 50 years, the National Music Museum has been home to one of the world's most respected collections of instruments. You can track musical history from the world's oldest cello to one of Elvis's guitars through its exhibits in Vermilion, South Dakota. That's right. 
The National Music Museum is located in a town of just under 12,000 people in the southeast edge of South Dakota. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rimbert went to take a look and to listen to some musical history. The National Music Museum is located just a few blocks north of Main Street in Vermilion. And on a recent afternoon, a group is congregating in one of the exhibit rooms where there is a gamelan. It's an Indonesian ensemble made up of many percussion instruments. The group ignores any do not touch signs and moves the gongs, drums, pots and xylophones that sit across the room. The Vermilion locals aren't here to admire the instruments. They're here to play them. Faith Weber plays the Peking, which sort of looks like a small xylophone. After practice, she says she learned about gamelan during her time in the Navy. When she heard about a gamelan concert in Vermilion, she thought a traveling group was coming through town. So I came and I was just stunned to find out that instruments lived here in South Dakota. <laughs> We're so lucky. This gamelan is one of more than 14,000 instruments in the museum's collection. It's a treat for professional musicians to perform using some of the instruments here, like the world's oldest cello, built in the mid-1500s in Italy. Or a soprano saxophone made by Adolf Sax, who invented the instrument in the 1840s. or a grand piano built in 1901 that was once the largest piano ever made. Dwight Vaught, the museum's director, knows what you're thinking. Why the National Music Museum is in Vermilion, South Dakota is probably our most asked question. He says the story all starts with a man named Arnie Larson who came to town with his collection of 2,500 instruments. It was 1966, and the university in Vermilion had hired Larson as a music professor. The new recruit came with a catch. When he was hired by the University of South Dakota, he said, do you have a place that I can store my instruments? And so they offered him a space. Arnie's son would lead the charge to turn the storage space into a museum, which officially opened its doors in 1973. Fifty years later, conservator Daryl Martin says the National Music Museum's collection is top three in the world, stacking up to institutions in Brussels and Paris. So it's the quality of the instruments over a wide range of instrument types. There's a 17th century harpsichord, there's a electric guitar from 20 years ago, and everything pretty much in, in between. During a tour, Martin walks up to one instrument, a small wooden keyboard painted in olive green. This is actually the oldest playable harpsichord in the world. With a bit of pleading, I'm a really bad player. He demonstrates what the world's oldest harpsichord sounds like. It was made in Naples probably around 1530. 500 years later, it's made its way to South Dakota. But if you can't make the trek to Vermilion, the National Music Museum presents exhibits and concert videos on its website. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rumpert in Vermilion, South Dakota. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The teacher strike continues in Newton, although the educators are under court order to return to work. Contract negotiations with the city are scheduled to resume this morning. No progress was reported after a bargaining session yesterday. The teachers have not had a contract since last summer. Among the demands, the union wants the city to provide raises and hire more staff to help students deal with mental health issues. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is spending the weekend in New Hampshire to promote a write-in campaign for President Biden leading up to Tuesday's primary. Biden is not on the New Hampshire ballot. The Democratic National Committee changed the longstanding calendar and made South Carolina the first primary state. New Hampshire responded by scheduling its election before South Carolina's. And the DNC says since that is noncompliant with the DNC rules, the contest in New Hampshire is meaningless. Last night in Boston, the Bruins beat the Montreal Canadiens 9-4. Tonight, the Celtics are in Houston against the Rockets. It's 15 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today and highs in the mid-20s. Windchill values as low as zero. Low around 17 degrees overnight. And then a sunny Monday, tomorrow's highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, it became clear that the rules of our games are somewhat flexible. Like roaches. I'm going to give it to you. Wolf spiders. Wait, what? I'm Peter Sagal. We'll probably bend over backwards to make sure actor David Oyelowo wins our game. I mean, he played MLK. Join us for the news quiz that plays it loose. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smartmouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology. Smartmouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Warren Bergman of Nina, Wisconsin. I said, think of a word for a person who helps you. Copy the last three letters and repeat them at the front, and you'll get a new, longer word that names a person who hurts you. What words are these? And it's a mentor and a tormentor. And, you know, lots of people think of me as their tormentor. (laughs) Yeah, when these puzzles are too hard. There were more than 1,100 correct entries, and this week's winner is Rick Tett of Plano, Texas. Congratulations, Rick. No, thank you. I was surprised and thrilled to get the call because I did think it wasn't wasn't too hard. Oh, well, how long have you been playing the puzzle? Since the postcard days, I'm afraid. Oh, wow. And you've never won before? I actually did. Uh, in the middle, back in the middle of the pandemic, I was uh, I was the winner. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so now you're back on. So did you feel like you did well then? 
yeah, I, I don't feel too bad about it. I listened to it again just just yesterday <laughs> after I had the call. Okay, so well, well, that's it. Couldn't have been too bad because you kept playing. Right, right. I have to imagine since you've done it before, you're ready. But I gotta ask: Are you ready to play the puzzle? I hope so. Depending on what Neil <laughs> has to throw at me. Yeah, you you'll get it. He's not gonna be a tormentor today. At least let's hope not. <laughs> Take it away, Will. All right, let's see how tormenting this is, Rick and Aisha. Every answer today is a proper name that starts and ends with the same two letters in the same order. For example, if I said Queen of Ithaca in Homer's Odyssey, you'd say Penelope, which starts and ends with P E. And as a hint, the answers today are in alphabetical order. Here's number one, capital of the Netherlands. Amsterdam. It is correct. Number two is member of the Church of England. Mm, Anglican. That's it. Wife of David and mother of Solomon in the Bible. Bathsheba. That's right. 1942 film starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Casablanca. That's it. Here's a tough one. Largest city on the South Island of New Zealand. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not too good on that geography. Um, okay. And you're, what if I told you the letters are CH? Canberra? No. Canberra? No, that's in Australia. This is New Zealand. CH? Does that help? No, you're going to have to help me on that one. The answer is Christchurch. Christchurch. Try this. A way of connecting local area computers. Ethernet. The Ethernet. Good job. Planet beyond Uranus. Um, what is it? Um, oh. Help me out, Aisha. <laughs> Go ahead, Aisha. Maybe Nep Neptune? Neptune is it, Annie. Neptune. Okay, here's a test of, of uh, geography. People who live in Dakar in West Africa. And Dakar happens to be the capital of? Uh, I'm trying to think. I want to say Ethiopia, but that's not. Um... And what if I told you uh, the letters are S-E? Starts and ends with S-E. People yes. who live in Dakar. Oh, is it Senegalese? Senegalese. Good job, Aisha. Oh, okay. The largest city in Canada? Toronto. Toronto, and here's your last one. I'm afraid it's a tough one. The capital of Poland, as the Polish spell it. Um, Warsaw. Oh, uh, yeah, well, it's Warsaw, and then it's Warszawa there, W-A-R-S-Z-A-W-A. I'll give you that one, Warszawa. Good job. <laughs> Okay, that was a toughy one. That was a little bit tormenting, but but Rick, you did an awesome job. How do you feel? I can breathe. I feel the same relief as when I finished a solo on stage. How's that? <laughs> okay, great. Well, for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about the puzzle and its prizes at npr.org slash puzzle. And Rick, what member station do you listen to? K-E-R-A Dallas. That's Rick Tett of Plano, Texas. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. That was great. Thank you. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Joseph Young, who conducts the blog Puzzleria. 
Think of a familiar saying in seven words. The initial letters of the first three words, in order, spell a type of container. And the initials of the last four words, in order, spell something edible that might be found in this container. What's the saying? So again, familiar saying, seven words. The initial letters of the first three words spell a type of container. And the initials of the last four words spell something edible that might be found in this container. What saying is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Have you ever lost your keys for a couple of days? Maybe your wallet. How about your autonomous helicopter? Well, that's what happened to NASA last week. The space agency announced it had lost contact with Ingenuity, an autonomous helicopter conducting research on Mars. Ingenuity is the first aircraft to achieve powered, controlled flight on another planet and is also part of the agency's Mars Exploration Program, a long-term effort to explore the Red Planet. The space helicopter executed a flight that day to test its systems in what NASA called a quick pop-up vertical flight. It went up 40 feet, but on the way down, Ingenuity stopped communicating with Perseverance, a Mars rover that relays data between the helicopter and Earth during the flights. But after a tense couple of days, engineers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California received good news. Perseverance, the rover, reestablished contact with Ingenuity after it conducted what NASA calls long-duration listening sessions for Ingenuity's signal. See? Good things happen when we listen. A new TV series begins with a woman lying in the middle of an isolated road. She's wearing a nightgown spotted with blood while a hushed voiceover plays. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. The show's name is as mysterious as that opening scene, The Woman in the Wall. Set in Ireland in 2015, it follows Lorna Brady. In middle age, she's still haunted by what happened to her as a teen. She got pregnant and was sent to one of the notorious Magdalene laundries run by the Catholic Church. Ruth Wilson stars, and on this side of the Atlantic, she's known for the series Luther and The Affair. For this new show, Wilson was drawn to Lorna, partly because of the character's strange habit. She sleepwalks. In her waking life, she's sort of an oddball, she's an outsider, she keeps herself to herself. But in her sleeping life, she is sort of this violent, kind of rageful, energetic uh, character. I thought it was a really interesting study on sort of how trauma manifests, both physically and emotionally. And also, look, it's, it's quite funny, the show. It has like a really sort of black comedy humour to it, as well as this murder mystery plot 
and this sort of gothic horror. So I was like, wow, this I've never read anything like this. But at the heart of it is something really important to get out there. I want to play a, a moment from the show. And, you know, full disclosure, you're, you're not in this scene, but it's two policemen, one who's been in the town forever and a big city cop who's just arrived. It's an example of how in this town there's a lot of talking about these women rather than listening. When those girls were up in that place, Lauren, Clements, they're probably too young to understand, but back then, the fear people had, honest to God, a lot of people would sooner their daughters were murdered than fall pregnant outside of marriage. I mean, that's an incredible statement. What kind of research did you do for this role? What did you learn about these Magdalene uh, laundries? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of material out there, actually. There's um, lots of these women who survived these institutions have given oral testimonies, which you can find online. And it's horrifying what was going on in those places. I mean, there's there's two. There's the Magdalene laundries, which were where girls were sent to do forced labour and they'd, like, wash the laundry of hospitals and prisons and convents and all for free. And they would go in there for all sorts of misdemeanours. I mean, it could be just that you look too pretty and people thought you were a danger. You would attract male attention. You would tempt men. Then there was um, the mother and baby homes where if you got pregnant out of wedlock, that's where you were put. And in our particular story, the child got taken away straight away. In other places I've read, the mothers would nurse their child for two years and then the child would be taken away. There was a sort of uh, complicity in society as a whole that these places existed and that it was a given that girls would go there. And no one wanted to really stand up and voice opposition to that. I read that you were raised Catholic. Um, mm. Did that influence your approach to this project? I've done a few projects which sort of deal with Catholicism, actually. So I obviously am drawn to exploring my own relationship to it. I mean, I don't go to church anymore. I'm a lapsed Catholic. But I grew up and went to church every week, and my dad still goes. And I do understand the need and, and the desire of having a community of people and a ritual and, you know, a place of meditation and prayer. But I do find it quite hard to reconcile uh, some of the actions of the church alongside what they spread as their belief system. When we were talking about that scene with Lorna and she has a scene with a nun later on and you can see that she is still vulnerable to the idea of being sinful and shameful and her fault and... I think that's how the power of the church works. It makes you feel that you are responsible and guilty. And I think that that's the complexity, is that it can stay with you for life, that sort of messaging, and that's how they have power. So I understood that, I think, from growing up in the church. Kind of pulling back a bit, you have played some really, truly original characters. Like so many other people, I, I kind of met you through the character of Alice Morgan, um, which you played opposite Idris Elba on Luther. And I know this is a little bit of a cliche, but, but how do you pick your roles? I mean, Luther, for example, was such an um, unusual character. I'd never read anything like it. You know, I thought, wow, you don't see many female psychopaths on screen. And I, and she was, I thought, you could have a lot of fun with this character because... 
she doesn't really feel anything, so nothing means anything to her. So in a way, humans are cat and mouse to her, you know? They're just play things. And I, I thought, I've never seen that on screen. And I remember, you know, I didn't initially say yes to it, Luther. I sort of said no for some reason. Can't remember why. But it didn't leave my brain. I was like, I've made a mistake. So I, I went back to them, you know, like, actually, can I... Are you still looking? Because I want to do it. Um... I'm always looking for something that's a bit more unusual or strange or challenging or is looking for the complexity of humans, not just women, but humans, you know, and how they can be both those things at the same time. They can be fragile, but also incredibly strong. And on this one, I was like, wow, she was so surprising, the character, Lorna. And at the end of the episode, I thought, oh, my God, I did not see that coming. You talk about the comedy, the dark comedy in The Woman in the Wall. Do you think you want to to do some more comedies or maybe more yeah. like straight comedies? Like things, yeah. <laughs> I I do. I mean, I actually this year I did a show on stage where I was on stage for 24 hours. I did the same scene a hundred times with a hundred different men, most of which weren't actors. And in that process, comedy became, and clowning became my sort of thing that I did. So instinctively, I actually think I'm a bit of a clown, but I've sort of done such dark material. But yeah, I would love to do something lighter and more absurdist and wild, I think, in that way, and humorous. Uh, And I'd also love to do like a romance. I would love to do a love story, because I don't think we have enough of them in the world. They're really hard to make, but I go, we need love and hope in the world. So I'm like, I want to do a love story. I think that would be great. Now, I don't love love stories. I love more murder. I like people to be showing up <laughs> dead and, and killed and stuff like that. But I would root for you in a in a love story. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> obviously, if I did a love story, it would be one with a bit of pain as yes, well, you yes. know. <laughs> I can't have love without pain, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. So well, don't worry, it won't all be like, you know. Simple. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's actor Ruth Wilson. Her new series airing on Paramount Plus and Showtime is called The Woman in the Wall. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely chatting to you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is NPR. Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. 
It is a crisp 15 degrees in Boston coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. And stay with WBUR. Wait, wait, don't tell me. It comes your way at 10 o'clock. Join us at City Space next month. Here and now's Robin Young speaks with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason about his hit novel North Woods, a New England ghost story spanning centuries. That is Tuesday, February 6th at City Space. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston, presenting the Avit Brothers at the stage at Suffolk Downs on Friday, May 18th. Learn more at theavitbrothers.com. I'm Robin Young. Italian-Americans were so proud when New York Giants quarterback Tommy DeVito did his hand gesture. What a throw by DeVito! He's got a little beachies there. Staying alive. And Tommy does the Italian thing. <laughs> but some thought of stereotypes, past discriminations, lynchings. Next time, here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. There are at least 10 conflicts going on in the Middle East right now, and New Yorker writer Robin Wright says they could all become one very big war. Deeply concerned. This is a moment where you have rivals merging forces and challenging whether it's Israel or the United States or the West. Vice President Harris is heading to Wisconsin this week to support abortion rights. And Green Day is back with a new album. It's Sunday, January 21st. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. There are just two days left before the first-in-the-nation primary in New Hampshire, and the two top contenders, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, are ramping up the rhetoric. Steve Futterman reports. In the final days before Tuesday's primary, Nikki Haley is questioning former President Trump's mental fitness. When you're dealing with the pressures of a presidency, we can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do this. Her comments came a day after Trump seemed to confuse Haley with Nancy Pelosi and actions on January 6th. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. I wasn't even in D.C. on January 6th. Trump and Haley will be campaigning today, trying to convince undecided voters. The most recent polls show Trump with a double-digit lead over Haley, with Ron DeSantis a distant third. For NPR News, I'm Steve Futterman in Manchester, New Hampshire. The Biden campaign is launching a nationwide political push focused on the 51st anniversary of the 1973 court ruling that codified abortion rights and later overturned. The president and vice president will appear together Tuesday in Virginia at an event focused on reproductive rights. Today is forecast to be the last day of a far-reaching deadly deep freeze that struck the U.S. earlier this month. 
NPR's Amy Held has details. A huge dome of Arctic air pressure is still dominating the eastern two-thirds of the U.S., with wind chill or hard freeze warnings stretching from the Midwest as far south as Texas into Florida Sunday morning. The finale for record-breaking and fatal cold plus snow blamed for dozens of deaths across multiple states. But a change in winds starting Monday will bring warmer air from the south to the eastern half of the country. By the time we get into late work week into the weekend, we're looking at temperatures that could be as high as the upper 60s, lower 70s, all the way up and down the mid-Atlantic and the southeastern seaboard. Frank Pereira, meteorologist with the National Weather Service, says by then temperatures could be 20 degrees higher than average or more in parts. Amy Held, NPR News. Hundreds of thousands are protesting in cities across Germany this weekend against right-wing extremism after details of a plan concocted by a far-right political party to deport millions of migrants were revealed. NPR's Rob Schmidt has details. Protests have been taking place in cities such as Hamburg, Frankfurt, Hanover, Dortmund, and Berlin, attracting hundreds of thousands. The protests were spurred by a report from a German news outlet that detailed how members of the right-wing Alternative for Deutschland Party, or AFD, met with German extremists in November to hatch a plan to deport immigrants and minorities, including those who are naturalized German citizens. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This week, Governor Healy will unveil her budget proposal for the next fiscal year. Among the items she's proposing, expanded early child care. Healy says she is not looking for any statewide tax or fee increases to pay for her initiatives. House Ways and Means Chair and Michael Witz tells WCVB's on the record that lawmakers are considering an online lottery as a potential new source of revenue. One thing that we put on the table to allow our lottery to be competitive with other online uh, measures like sports betting uh, and take that revenue and move it towards uh, early education uh, funding. We think it's a good component, an easy component to go through. Tomorrow, Governor Healy plans to ask the legislature to give cities and towns the power to increase local taxes on meals and lodging and to impose an additional motor vehicle excise surcharge. Healy cut $375 million from the state budget recently, citing slower revenue growth. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is spending the weekend in New Hampshire to promote a write-in campaign for President Biden leading up to Tuesday's primary. Biden is not on the New Hampshire ballot. Yesterday, Wu spoke with small gatherings of voters in Nashua and Manchester. We need a leader with the temperament, with the tenacity, and with the team around them to move us forward. We have that leader now. President Biden declined to be on the New Hampshire ballot after the Democratic National Committee made South Carolina the first primary state. New Hampshire responded to that change by deliberately scheduling its election before South Carolina's, and the DNC then said New Hampshire is noncompliant with the rules. Striking teachers in Newton are under court order to return to work. Contract negotiations with the city are scheduled to resume this morning. No progress was reported after a bargaining session yesterday. The teachers have not had a contract since last summer. At the Garden last night, the Bruins beat the Canadiens 9-4. Tonight, the Celtics are in Houston against the Rockets. It is 15 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the mid-20s. Windchill values as low as zero. Low dropping to about 17 degrees overnight and then a sunny Monday. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. 
WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us. We'll start this hour with the Middle East, where the death toll in the Gaza Strip has exceeded 25,000, according to the health ministry there. Yet the fighting between Israel and Hamas is just one of 10 conflicts going on in the region. Israel is also exchanging fire with Hezbollah to its north and Syria to the east. Those conflicts have prompted other Islamic militias to act in solidarity with Hamas and Hezbollah. On the Arabian Peninsula, Houthi rebels have been conducting a long-running war against the Yemeni government. Now they've begun firing rockets at U.S. ships in the Red Sea and directly at Israel. Meanwhile, Iranian-backed militias have also attacked U.S. interests in Iraq and Syria, as recently as yesterday when militia rockets wounded an Iraqi soldier and an unknown number of U.S. troops at an airbase in Iraq. And on the same day, an Israeli strike in Syria killed five members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. New Yorker writer Robin Wright says some of these conflicts existed before, but could now escalate and are now all merging into one giant war as regional forces come together in their opposition to Israel. Robin Wright joins us now to explain. Welcome to the program. It's always great to be with you. Let's start with Iran. That country is behind a lot of the fighting, both directly by attacking neighbors with missiles and indirectly by supporting militias like Hamas and Hezbollah. Is that right? Like, is Iran playing a big role in a lot of this? Iran is a major player in that it's created a network of allies or proxies across the Middle East. There are four major militias in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, but their cells and others. Uh, unlike the United States, which tapped into allies in creating NATO after World War II, Iran has gone out and tapped into disaffected communities within states and in defiance of governments to create a network of allies, arm them, train them, equip them, uh, and help them strategically in moving forward their disparate causes and their different flashpoints. When you look at these conflicts, obviously, you know, there can be a lot of attention on Iran and the U.S., but you are making the case that there's a lot more going on. I think there are three big reasons that you've seen the merger of these conflicts. And one is that many of these militias in the axis of resistance are now two generations old. They're battle-hardened in their local conflicts. They are well-trained, well-armed, and they've been at this for a long time. The second reason is that there's an attraction to some of these militias and these causes, in part because there's no viable alternative, no isms or ideologies that attract them. And so these Islamic movements backed by Iran are attractive. I I think there are people who may not like the tactics that Hamas is engaged in, but they admire or envy the fact that they've they've stood up to both Israel 
and U.S. influence. And I think the third reason is that the United States has, in many of these conflicts since 9-11, exerted its military muscle, has turned first to force as the way to solve them. And that hasn't always been effectively or efficiently or simultaneously accompanied by diplomacy. And so you've seen as a result, these conflicts merge in a way, find common cause because there aren't alternatives and because force has defined what's happening or played out on the ground for so long now. When you look at how much of all of this is tied to the Israel and Hamas war, it seems like some of this obviously preceded it, but how much is that pouring gasoline on the fire? Um, Gasoline may be the right word. The 10 conflicts have brought together diverse rivals in different arenas over disparate flashpoints. And the tensions that have played out between Israel and Gaza have, in a way, merged these different conflicts. They have common links. uh, And the kind of sympathy in the Arab world and in Iran for the Palestinians in Gaza has conflated the conflict, has brought the different diverse conflicts together. And of course, the U.S. strongly allied with Israel has brought it into conflict with some of Iran's proxies as well, as we've seen play out with the Houthis in Yemen. What does it mean, though, to have all of these conflicts kind of merging? I mean, to me, uh, just hearing that and thinking about the Middle East to have all of these conflicts now coming to a flashpoint, to me, it seems very concerning. How concerned should the rest of the world be about this? Oh, deeply concerned. This is a moment where you have rivals merging forces and challenging whether it's Israel or the United States or the West, there's a danger that this can't be solved just by creating a two-state solution, for example. This is something that's going to take, that has the potential to become a much bigger war, to escalate, uh, to lead the United States deeper into conflict in the region at a time the US is also facing help for its allies in Ukraine against Russia at a time there are other threats with China threatening Taiwan. The Middle East, once again, is endangering to suck away the attention, the resources, and the capabilities of the United States to a regional war that the Biden administration had wanted to kind of put on the back burner or walk away from to focus on Asia. That's New Yorker writer Robin Wright. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is heading back to New Hampshire today, less than 48 hours before the presidential primary there. He's down in the polls and looking beyond this week's contest to keep his campaign on track. So he started the weekend in South Carolina, where the primary is more than a month from now. NPR's Stephen Fowler followed DeSantis on his southern sidebar. It's the final weekend of campaigning before New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation Republican presidential primary, and voters are bundled up, braving the cold to see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. 
But it's not a retail stop in Nashua or a town hall in Manchester. Well, when I got off the plane, I didn't know whether I was in South Carolina or New Hampshire because it was 30 degrees. It's unseasonably chilly in Myrtle Beach and unusual for a candidate to be here when people are voting in New Hampshire just days from now. After finishing second place in the Iowa caucus last week, DeSantis is on track to finish in the single digits Tuesday, far behind former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. There are a few other contests in the coming weeks, but DeSantis is all in on the first in the South primary at the end of February. I think clearly if you look at this constituency, uh, this is a great constituency uh, for me. And more explicitly, there's just too many conservative voters here for someone like Nikki Haley to win the state. Team DeSantis argues beating Haley in her home state clears the path for a one-on-one -on -one matchup against Trump. That could backfire, though. DeSantis is polling a distant third in South Carolina, too. It's not that Republican voters don't like Ron DeSantis. There's a lot of overlap with his base and that of Donald Trump. We have all good candidates. I'd vote for the top three. Unfortunately, I think former President Trump has a lot going for him. I think they need to unite because as Republicans, we're getting whooped. That's Jim Bolig, one of hundreds of people that flocked to the Hangout restaurant in Myrtle Beach to hear DeSantis, and one of many who think he would make a great president, just not when Trump is running. President Trump's already been there, done that, um, and he showed leadership. He united under incredible odds, and uh, I think if they put the team together, I think this country is going to go forward again. That sentiment was echoed by Ken Coleman. Unfortunately, I don't think it's his time. Not this year. In 2024, I believe in my heart, it's Donald Trump's time. Coleman got to ask DeSantis about the southern border and illegal immigration. All day, the crowds cheered at mentions of cutting government spending, fighting diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at colleges and universities, and DeSantis's other plans for America. He's got a great reputation among conservatives, so I think right now it's just a little premature. National and state-level polls still show Donald Trump with a commanding lead, and South Carolina's top Republicans, including Senator Tim Scott, started the weekend in New Hampshire campaigning for Trump. President, who will unite our country? We need Donald Trump. DeSantis says he's in it for the long haul and has a path to the nomination, but even he seems to realize that path doesn't run through South Carolina yet. He canceled major TV appearances on Sunday to fly back to the Granite State. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Russia now controls 18% of Ukrainian territory, and within that area, it's trying to convert the local population with one of the most powerful weapons available, bureaucracy. Russian occupiers now control everything from weddings to education to passports. If you want to open a bank account, run a business, get welfare payments, do almost anything really in relation to the state, then you need a Russian passport. Later today on All Things Considered, life in occupied Ukraine. Tune in to your favorite public radio station on your radio, smart speaker, or smartphone.
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about half an hour, Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong discusses the band's new album, which continues Green Day's critiques of American society. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. And stay with WBUR at 10 o'clock. It's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It has warmed up to 16 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today highs in the mid-20s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. And Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, with over 700 artifacts from the Holocaust, opens this March in Boston. The Auschwitz Exhibition.com. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. There are just two days left before the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire. The top two Republican contenders, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, are ramping up their rhetoric. The Biden campaign is launching a nationwide political push focused on the 51st anniversary of the 1973 court ruling that codified abortion rights before it was overturned. The president and vice president will appear together Tuesday in Virginia. Today is forecast to be the last day of a far-reaching, deadly deep freeze that struck the U.S. earlier this month. A warm-up is in the forecast for much of the country. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. For much of its 70-year history, Sports Illustrated was the top of the heap when it came to sports journalism. It was the place every aspiring sports writer and sports photographer wanted to work. There was a Sports Illustrated for kids, Sports Illustrated for women, and one of the first 24-hour sports news websites. But in recent years, the magazine has been on a decline. And on Friday, its owner announced it will lay off more than 100 employees, most if not all of the staff. Washington Post sports and media reporter Ben Strauss joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. These layoffs come because the publisher missed a payment to the owner of the Sports Illustrated brand. What's that about? Yeah, Sports Illustrated has a a super complicated ownership structure. So there's a company that owns Sports Illustrated called the Authentic Brands Group. And then they sell the publishing license to another company called the Arena Group. And the Arena Group pays the parent company a licensing fee to publish it. And they missed a payment earlier this month. 
And that is, is what precipitated the termination of the license. And in response to the termination of the license, the publishing group announced that they are going to lay off the staff. Now, the second part of that is two companies at the, you know, the top of Sports Illustrated are continuing to negotiate what a new license could look like. And so if they are able to reach a new agreement, most of these people will, in fact, keep their jobs. So the publisher has to pay about $15 million a, a year to the brand owner. Is, is basically the publisher saying they they can't make that amount of money? That's too much money um, for them to be able to make ends meet? Correct, correct. So uh, media is a tough business these days. And imagine you're starting every year $15 million in the hole already before you pay a salary, before you publish an article. I see that the same brand owner, ABG, licensed the Sports Illustrated name to an online casino and a chain of vacation resorts. Is Sports Illustrated as a, a brand more profitable than Sports Illustrated as a magazine? If you talk to the people who own Sports Illustrated, uh, yes. You know, I talked to the owner of the company, the CEO of this parent company, and they said the Sports Illustrated brand is strong. You know, they said they're making money on these licensing deals. Um, and so if you take that at face value, there would appear to be a business here, they say. However, the brand is the journalism, is the magazine. And so how you continue to license a brand or to make money on a brand with there is no publication seems extremely uh, difficult. We've seen sports journalism, you know, actual journalism decline elsewhere. Obviously, all of the media really is in, in, in a tough time. But there's all this money going into sports and, and it's all over social media. Why is journalism having a hard time finding its audience? Yeah, you've seen, you know, really just about every sports media company go through a series of layoffs and, and, and sort of emerge smaller than it was 10 years ago, five years ago. Journalism in general is tough to sell these days. Newspapers, magazines have lost all the advertising from their print publications um, as they've migrated to digital. And those ad dollars are going you know, to Google and Facebook. So just the economics there is difficult. The TV networks have seen the cable bundle deteriorate. And so those fees that they counted on for decades and decades that that paid for the journalism are in jeopardy. And there is a lot of other content available. Athletes have their own podcasts. You know, teams and leagues have their own media arms. Um, so many dynamics, you know, some that are widespread across media, some that are unique to sports. But there's so many different things that, that have contributed to this widespread decline of, of sports journalism. That's Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. President Biden narrowly won Wisconsin in 2020, and recent polls indicate most people in the state support abortion rights. That's a topic the Biden-Harris campaign wants to emphasize in their re-election bid. Chuck Quirmbach of member station WUWM in Milwaukee reports ahead of a trip Vice President Kamala Harris has planned to the Badger State. Abortion rights supporters in Wisconsin say they had a pretty good year in 2023. Abortions resumed last fall after being halted for more than a year. That was due to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade, which had declared a constitutional right to abortion. 
now with Monday, the 51st anniversary of Roe, Vice President Kamala Harris will be in suburban Milwaukee to emphasize abortion rights ahead of the 2024 elections. The topic is already on the minds of some people. About 40 members of the group Motherhood for Good gathered on a sub-zero afternoon in typically Republican Brookfield, just outside Milwaukee. A progressive group of mostly suburban moms and other women advocates for abortion rights and more access to affordable childcare. Motherhood for Good founder Kate Duffy says she plans to listen to what Kamala Harris has to say, as Duffy says abortion rights are still under attack. To have somebody at such a high level continue to reiterate how big of a priority it is to her and is to the president and the administration is really important. It's going to be something we're talking about a lot within our group um, in the coming months leading up to the election. Some who follow the group say they used to back Republican presidential candidates. Kalina Stephen voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, but adds that attacks on abortion rights and other topics turned her away from the GOP. Stephen says access to abortion is also an economic issue. They are very much intertwined, and the ability for a woman to decide when, if, and how she expands her family, that she decides to become a mother, that is central to women's ability to create financial stability. Marquette University pollster Charles Franklin says the vice president's visit to Wisconsin can possibly reinforce some of the democratic gains that have occurred in the suburbs here, but also energize some large city Democrats who, polling says, have become less enthusiastic about President Joe Biden. Biden only won Wisconsin by about 20,000 votes four years ago, following a narrow win by Donald Trump in 2016. Franklin cautions that many voters in big elections pay attention to multiple topics. So it's still unclear just how big a role abortion will play in the presidential race. Some role, certainly, but it will be competing with those other issues like the economy and immigration. All the remaining Republican presidential candidates, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis, say they support restrictions on abortion. Wisconsin abortion rights opponent Brianna Arnold is an organizer for Turning Point Action, a national conservative group focused on younger voters. Arnold says it's important to eventually get behind the strongest anti-abortion rights candidate this fall. If someone is not in favor of whoever the nominee is, they can't just not vote for the person, because in theory, that's just giving a vote to the Democrats. The Biden-Harris campaign says besides the vice president's visit to Wisconsin, a new paid media effort about abortion rights is targeting women and swing voters in battleground states. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. When Stephen Sondheim died in 2021, he was widely regarded as brilliant, but an acquired taste. The creator of such musicals as Into the Woods and Sweeney Todd was beloved by critics and fans. But his shows often lost money because regular theater goers didn't know what to make of them. Critic Bob Mondello says that in the short time since his death, audiences have figured Sondheim out. It's a hit, it's a hit, 
The hottest ticket on Broadway at the moment, judging from what people are willing to pay for it, is Stephen Sondheim's notoriously troubled musical that goes backwards, Merrily We Roll Along. Your spirits ever need improving, you can drop it any night for free. Its original Broadway run was a flop, and it has never entirely worked before this, but it's currently playing to standing room crowds and standing ovations. The hottest ticket off-Broadway is Here We Are, the musical Sondheim was still working on when he died. Also playing to capacity crowds, his penny dreadful horror tale, Sweeney Todd. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. And on the road, there's a gender-switched revival of Company that was the last show the composer-lyricist saw before he died. All of these revivals were less successful in their original runs in the 1970s and 80s. As I've caught them, I can't help thinking how pleased Sondheim would be, pleased and a bit surprised, no doubt, and wishing I could hear him talk about them, especially the new show, Here We Are. And then I discovered I could. I think the idea is to do it in the spring of 18. DT Max interviewed Sondheim several times in 2017 and 18 for a New Yorker profile that turned into the book Finale, Late Conversations with Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim was working at the time on what would become Here We Are, or at least on its first half, based on the surrealist Bunuel comedy The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, about three couples searching everywhere for a place to eat. There is a complete score, but I want to add and tweak it out Second act, there's a complete draft of the book, and I've just begun the score. Max had recorded his in-person interviews on his cell phone, and while the sound quality isn't all you'd wish, the conversations are. For instance, this about how a producer's stray remark decades ago planted the seed for Here We Are. It stems from a remark Hal Prince made in a cab once. He said, you know, if he was, we were looking out at night, coming back from the theater or something, I said, you know, if the dominant force of entertainment is eating out because all the restaurants were lit up and that's what people were doing they weren't going to the theater they were eating and i didn't immediately think oh that would make a musical but somehow on seeing discreet shot what he put to music and his usual witty lyrics was the frustration of diners perpetually being told they will not be getting food or even coffee don't tell me that you we have, have no, no mocha then just a decaf we're also latte. out of lattes what? we do expect a little latte later but we haven't got the latte latte now I'm still feeling my way because it isn't the kind of tight story that something like Sweeney or Merrily is. There are six main characters and they interact, but there's very little plot. All right, then tea. There's plenty of plot in his other shows, almost too much sometimes. Back in the 1980s, audiences got confused by the time-going-backwards thing in Merrily We Roll Along and couldn't keep the characters straight. The original production tried to clear up who was who with t-shirts saying things like Best Pal. The current production has a better trick. It cast Harry Potter's Daniel Radcliffe as the best pal. Easy to keep him straight. They're always popping their cork. I'll fix that line. He's playing a budding writer of musicals in the 1950s and 60s, exactly what Sondheim was back then. It relates to my life. It's not about my life. No, you're not serious. Nobody's ready. Apparently somebody canceled a booking. The composer said that remembering the frantic, gotta put on a show craziness gets him every time. I always cry at the climax of We're worried about it on Sunday. We're worried about it on Sunday. We're opening doors. Singing, here we are. Singing, here we are. And here we are four decades later with his latest show called Here We Are, feeling like a sort of victory lap. 
The man who wrote a song and a book called Finishing the Hat never finished that second act, but his legacy is secure at this point. He talks in finale, late conversations with Stephen Sondheim, about feeling low energy and old-fashioned. The kind of music I write has nothing to do with pop music since mid-50s. Reminded that he's widely regarded as a genius who altered an art form, he deflects, citing Stravinsky, Gershwin, Picasso, and saying he doesn't belong in their company. But he may have been the only person who thought that. And anyway, it's not up to him. Posterity gets to decide who belongs in the genius pantheon. And with stars and directors clamoring to do his shows and audiences embracing them as never before, the early verdict is clear. Stephen Sondheim's work, all of it, is a hit. It's a hit. It's a palpable hit. I'm Bob Mundell. Only even runs a minute. At least it's a wedge. It's the theater and we're really in it, not just on the edge. If your spirits ever need improving, you can drop it any night for free. But the thing that's positively moving, you could have fooled me, is we're still old friends. Nothing can kill old friends. Where there's a you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. As freezing cold temperatures descend across much of the country, it feels like the perfect time to warm up with a good book and dig into some piping hot comfort food. For many, the chilly month of January is peak soup season, and one children's book celebrates the joys of a particular kind of soup, ramen. NPR's Lauren Magaki has more. The star of Kira Wright Ruiz's picture book is a packet of ramen. A shiny orange packet of instant ramen with big dopey eyes who lives on the grocery store shelves and dreams of being the more popular, more beautiful spaghetti. I am ramen, but I want to be spaghetti because everybody loves spaghetti. Here's Wright Ruiz reading from her book. Down their aisle, I see so many people picking from boxes and boxes of spaghetti. Everywhere I look, there is some story about spaghetti. What goes on it, where it's from, and how tasty it is. Spaghetti is everywhere. Maybe if I were more like spaghetti, I'd be everywhere too. While ramen is popular around the world, it's hard not to acknowledge the hold that spaghetti has on American pop culture. Now tell me, what's your pleasure? From Lady and the Tramp he says he wants two spaghetti to childhood songs. On top of spaghetti, all covered with cheese. In Wright Ruiz's book, I Want to Be Spaghetti, Little Ramen dreams of being paired with red sauce and meatballs. And it's not until someone plucks the little ramen off the shelf and pairs it with pork belly, egg, seaweed, and fish cakes that the little ramen realizes how special it is. This book is so much a celebration of Asian pride. You know, ramen, although its origins are in Japan, noodles mean so much to such a variety of people in Asia. As a mixed-race Korean-Ecuadorian kid growing up in Florida, Wright Ruiz struggled to celebrate her identity. I just remember looking in the mirror when I was four years old, wishing I had blonde hair, had lighter skin, had blue eyes. She and illustrator Claudia Lam bonded over this feeling. Lam grew up between Sydney and Hong Kong, and the two worked together to decide what exactly their main character would look like. Should instant ramen be a vertical package? When you take out the noodles, are they circular? Are they square? They landed on a rectangular ramen with yellow scribbly curls. It's a ramen from Wright Ruiz's own childhood. You know, I grew up microwaving it, 
taking out most of the broth and dousing it in hot sauce. So very um, not traditional way to eat ramen. Since then, Wright Ruiz says she's never met a ramen she didn't like and even developed a recipe that pays homage to her own mixed race roots. That was like a sasson ramen. So it's like a mixture of a little cumin, um, achote. I mixed it with like some shrimp, a little spinach because you got to have that veg and um, noodles. It's something she calls me in a bowl. The beauty of ramen, she says, is that the topping possibilities are endless. So everyone can create their own me in a bowl even though spaghetti's out there. There's actually this ramen I love in Tokyo that is more based off like spaghetti. So it's like in a tomato broth topped with like a bunch of Parmesan and it is so good. It's truly the merging of the worlds. The book is I Want to Be Spaghetti by Kira Wright Ruiz, illustrated by Claudia Lamb. And it's a celebration of the literal melting pot in all of our bowls. Lauren Migaki, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This week, Governor Healy unveils her budget proposal for the next fiscal year. One of her proposals expanded early child care. Healy says she is not looking for any statewide tax or fee increases to pay for her initiatives. Tomorrow, the governor plans to ask the legislature to give cities and towns the power to increase local taxes on meals and lodging and to impose an additional motor vehicle excise surcharge. The Hampton District Attorney's Office is planning a new approach to make progress in resolving decades-old homicide and sexual assault cases. Starting this week, the DA's office will begin offering free DNA ancestry tests at public events and through its website. Results create documentation of familiar connections, and that can help investigators narrow down the search for suspects. Last year, the Middlesex District Attorney's Office postponed a similar effort in Newton, in part because the ACLU raised privacy concerns. Tonight, the Celtics are in Houston against the Rockets. It is 16 degrees in Boston. Sunny skies today, highs in the mid-20s, a low around 17 overnight, and then a sunny Monday. Tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, with Takach Quartet performing music by Haydn, Beethoven, and Nogutula and Guanyama, February 16th, CelebritySeries.org. After winning Iowa's Republican caucuses by nearly 30 points, former President Donald Trump is hoping to clinch the New Hampshire primary, too. Winning over Republican voters in the Granite State might not be as easy, especially with rival Nikki Haley trying to appeal to independents to pull off an upset there. I'm Scott Detrow. NPR is on the ground in New Hampshire on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The past few weeks have been full of controversy and tragedy for Black women in academia. Claudine Gay, the first Black woman to head Harvard University, stepped down after a donor-led campaign pushed for her ouster over plagiarism accusations and her response to anti-Semitism on campus. And earlier this month, a former administrator at Lincoln University, a historically Black college, died by suicide. Antoinette Candia Bailey had reportedly complained of bullying at the institution. The school's president, a white man, has taken a leave of absence while the case is reviewed. All of this has led to an outcry about the treatment of Black women in higher education. Here to talk with us about the weight of this moment is Joy Gaston Gales. She's the head of North Carolina State University's Department of Educational Leadership, Policy and Human Development, and a former president of the Association for the Study of Higher Education. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to have uh, this tough conversation. And I, I want to be clear that you're speaking on behalf of yourself, not on behalf of any institution. I want to start off, talk to me about what it is like to be a Black woman trying to climb the ladder in higher education. What is unique about that circumstance? It's difficult because for a lot of us, particularly if we are in predominantly white institutions, it's hard because you'll find that you are the only one or one of few, and that's been the case for me. And, you know, when you're the only one, when microaggressions happen, when gaslighting happens, you question it to say, did that really happen? Did that really happen to me? And if you don't have anybody to talk to, if you don't have a community of support, you can just endure that day after day after day. And that's how bullying is able to perpetuate itself and because nobody is stepping up to stop it. And particularly in reference to Black women, we don't get that kind of protection. I mean, I read that Black women often feel like their research is less likely to be funded. They're scored lower on faculty evaluations. Tressie McMillan Cottom often says, and, and she's a scholar, that the institution cannot love you. And I just wonder about what that feels like to give in that way. Yeah, but you, you got to have your why straight. We are in these spaces and we know this, that the academy will never love us to the extent that we love it because we show up because we love what we do. We love the students that we work with. And so you have to have your your why together. Otherwise, you will get caught up in the ways that the institution not loving us manifests itself. To some degree, like I think about Claudine Gay, like leaving, she had to, because they were gonna keep coming for her until she did. And I just think about the stress that happens when they come for you in that way. And it's not worth it, right? I want to do good work, but I don't want to die. Talking about Claudine Gay, when, when she stepped down, I saw so many posts on social media from like Black professors, and they seemed extremely distraught. Why did her resignation hit so hard? I think it hit hard because 
Like she was the first, the first Diverse. black woman mm. president to lead this, you know, elite institution. It reflects back to you what you are experiencing. And it's a harsh reminder that regardless of what you achieve, regardless of working 10 times harder, regardless of exemplifying black excellence, none of that will save you. Mm. You knew Antoinette Candia Bailey or Bonnie. You knew Bonnie. Tell me about her. Yeah, so when I came to NC State in 2007, our time at NC State overlapped. When, I'll just be frank, when Black people come to the university, we find each other and support each other and talk to each other because there's, there's not that many of us to begin with. And so my encounters with her were always pleasant. She was always full of joy and life and light. And then, you know, she eventually moved on and continued her career. But, you know, we kept in touch via social media. Every now and then we send each other a note to say, hey, she was just always full of life and joy and, you know, hearing of her passing really, really affected me because I that that's the last thing I would have expected. And she worked for an HBCU, Lincoln University is an HBCU, and, and, and that is supposed to be a, a safe haven. But in this case, it wasn't. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a proud graduate of an HBCU. And I love my HBCUs, but they are not perfect either. And it goes back to the ways in which we perpetuate violence and systemic racism, sexism, all the things. It permeates all of society, not just predominantly white institutions. It happens more than people would imagine at HBCUs too. What do you think that Black women need from academia at this point? And, and what is not just lip service? Yeah, we need a lot. Um, but it's not just higher education. It's society. You know, I feel like we got to come to terms with our history and, and the reality. I feel like there's a movement to move us away from doing that because of the fear and the shame and the guilt. But we got to come to terms with that and not just higher education, but society, because we exist in a society now where some of us are still thought of as property. And when you dehumanize people to that extent, it allows you psychologically to do some things that you have justified, you know, in terms of it makes sense to you because they're not really human They're We think of them as property. That's Professor Joy Gaston-Gales, head of North Carolina State University's Department of Educational Leadership, Policy, and Human Development, but speaking on her own and about her own experience. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Last week in Manhattan, down in the subway, four men in long hair, beards, and dark eyeglasses made some music. Baby, when I think about you, think about love. We dressed in disguise, and people just were kind of staring at us. Once they ditched the glasses and all that hair, though, it was Green Day, with Jimmy Fallon on the tambourine, playing that surprise set for The Tonight Show. And the New York commuters waiting on the platform, a lot of them sang right along. 
Green Day is celebrating some big anniversaries. 30 years since its breakthrough album Dookie, 20 since its multi-platinum punk rock opera American Idiot, and they have a new album out as well. It's called Saviors. When I got the chance to talk to Green Day frontman Billy Joe Armstrong, I asked him about the title of their first track, The American Dream is Killing Me. It kind of plays with when people say the American Dream is dead, and it's like, well, the American Dream is killing me. <laughs> I think um, being in California and seeing, like, houseless people just on the street and people without options in, in life and the cost of living going up, it's like creates that chaos and depression that is sort of what the song sort of reflects. And do you look at the American dream as sort of like capitalism, like the pursuit or materialism or? I don't know. I think that it needs to be redefined because it's like the working class has become like sort of a service industry and we're not really giving very many options to people. You know, in the 70s, my dad was a truck driver and he was a teamster. My my mom was a waitress, six kids in the house, and they were able to afford their own home. But I think now I don't really see it that being very feasible for a lot of people. When you think about American life, it was 20 years ago that Green Day had this mega hit with American Idiot. George W. Bush was president. The Iraq war was going on. MTV still played videos. You're right. And, you know, you were calling out problems with American culture then. Now you're, you know, in your early 50s. Has your perspective changed? Um, everything would seem to be more, a little more, like, clear-cut. Like, the problems that um, were going on, the war in Iraq and, you know, George W. Bush, someone that wasn't felt qualified. Now it's just so chaotic. Social media, it's like a giant Yelp review. You know, it's like this sort of wasness of war and chaos that is sort of in, in the stratosphere. We stumble down the avenue like fairy dust in Ballyhoo. They promised us forever, but we got less. When you listen to Green Day's lyrics, the music can seem very upbeat, catchy. I'm automatically starting to, you know, rock out. Do you ever think that people miss the point that you're making because they're just kind of bopping their heads along and not really paying attention? Or like, is that something that you even think about? You know, it's either or. Like, I think the one thing about us is I, I'm really proud of the music that we make together. Just that's just as important to me as what I'm saying in the lyrics. So if you feel like bopping around, I'd say go for it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> You've been open over the years about your mental health, um, your struggle with alcohol and, and sobriety. And the song Dilemma touches on some of that.
be a dead man walking. What did you mean by that? Well, I think I wrote it, that song when I, I was sober for five years and then I got a little FOMO or something. And then I saw so I picked up the bottle again and, and then it just escalated. Getting to this point where it's like, I didn't want to like hurt the relationships and things around me. And um, so I quit. <laughs> so, yeah. Alcohol just gets in the way. Anything that I wanted to accomplish in my life, whether it was my personal relationships with people or, you know, my music, I, I think it was just getting in the way. It was just like a barrier, so I had to get rid of the barrier, and I'm, I'm way happier for it now, too. And I've got great friends that are sober, and we can go out, go to a show at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and, um, yeah, and just that, and then like it, nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. You know what I mean? <laughs> You've been married for almost 30 years now. You and your wife raised, I mean, they're two young men now, and you have a, a song, Father to a Son. You're a lighthouse in a storm from the day that you were born, a promise. Father to a son. You know, I just wanted to kind of show going through the years and watching your your sons become young men and sort of the wisdom that they've collected is a beautiful thing. And I didn't know how to be a parent when I started to. So I had to really like learn on the job and, and I needed to grow up a lot. And I made mistakes, you know, I think there's definitely I, I try to convey that in the song. Well, I made a few mistakes, but I'll never break your heart, I promise, father to a son. Does it make you more forgiving of your own parents? Yeah, especially for my mom. My father died when I was young, so she had to kind of raise kids on her own, and she had to work as a waitress you know, living paycheck to paycheck. So definitely, like, I could identify with that and kind of realize, like, how heroic she really was as a parent. Mm. When you look at younger generations and what they're inheriting, is there something that you look at and you feel like this is going right in the U.S. and in this world today? You know, there are things about, like, America that I love. Like, I love, I love Texas. I love going to Georgia and Atlanta and shopping for old guitars. And, you know, my mom's from Oklahoma and I like to visit there. And it's, uh, you know, and I love the Midwest. My wife's from Minnesota. So we do have a diverse culture, just basically where people come from. The diversity is just way more pronounced now. It's there and it's stronger than it's ever been. Do you want to be my girlfriend? take you to a movie that we've already seen that's billy joe armstrong frontman of the band green day their new album is saviors thank you so much for talking to us today thank you for having me do you want to be my girlfriend 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Have a good rest of your weekend. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for spending your weekend with 90.9 WBUR. And thanks for listening throughout the week. You'll catch the latest news at the start of the hour. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary votes this Tuesday evening. Live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries starts at 7 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Sargent College. Advance your career with an MS in nutrition in two semesters. Priority deadline February 15th. BU.edu slash Sargent. I'm Robin Young. Italian-Americans were so proud when New York Giants quarterback Tommy DeVito did his hand gesture. What a throw by DeVito! He's got a little beachies there. Staying alive. And Tommy does the Italian thing. <laughs> but some thought of stereotypes, past discriminations, lynchings. Next time, here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.